because nobody has the authority to point to somebody else and say, you're a desperate sinner, unless their thumb is pointing back at themselves. And that's probably the key to being pro-life. Because I've watched people who only were angry, who only saw how horrible it was, and didn't recognize our own guilt and our own complicity. And those people became dangerous. They shot abortionists. They shot bodyguards. They were filled with anger. I knew people in Philly. We wouldn't invite them to a rescue anymore because they couldn't set their anger aside. And what does God say anger boils down to? Sermon on the Mount, what's anger boil down to? Murder. We're sitting here telling these people, quit committing murder, and we're committing a murder. So above all, I encourage you to come back to the gospel. Come back to the gospel. And then you have something to say to that woman. And so I want to just turn back on my brother and say, no, brother, you're a lot more brave than I am, and you're a lot more sacrificial than I've ever been because you're continuing to do that work in front of the abortion clinic. Well, today I want to share with you from an Old Testament passage, Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel 16. <clears throat> and, I'm, and I'm going to have the presumption to actually sing a little of it to you in Hebrew. This is chapter 6. I mean, sorry, this is verse 6, which is the theme for what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> And I have a cold, so this could be interesting. Chai. And as you may have guessed, Chai is live. Live. Let's read the first six verses. <clears throat> yeah, let's pray. Lord, I thank you, Jesus, for this tremendous privilege. I thank you that um, Joe built me up way too high. But he and I both know the truth. I'm a desperate sinner just like all my brothers and sisters here who found an incredible Savior. And so we pray that as we look at your word, yes, we will have a zeal for life because you said live, but also we would have a love for sinners like us. And we'll continue to repent as we call them to repent. Bless your word to our hearing and our hearts to receive it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read the first six verses of Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm an old King James man, so I apologize to anybody that's not. But <laughs> Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, Thy birth and thy nativity, there's that word, is of the land of Canaan, Thy father was an Amorite, and thy mother a Hittite. 
And as for thy nativity in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee. But thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. So, my fellow Christians, what was our condition when Christ came to us? We were without hope. Even at the beginning of our lives, we were outcasts, discarded, unwanted. We were like children, rejected from birth. But the Lord did come and find us. Amen? Amen. And it would be nice if that was all there was to the story. <laughs> How often have we thought, okay, Lord, I'm ready. You know, you saved me, let's get home. But Ezekiel goes on to tell a story that we are all in the middle of right now. Sadly, we continue to sin. And if you have trusted in the Lord, your worst sin is unbelief. Uh, Hebrews 3, 12 through 13 gives us this, this warning. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Now, unbelief can have two very different forms. Uh, one of them we call legalism, and the other we call license. But before I say any more on this subject, I want to ask you a, a theological question. What is the one thing that can separate us from the love of Christ in Jesus? I mean, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Well, let's look at Romans 8. We're going to check this out because we want to get this clear. We're going to be talking about sin, you know. So let's look. Romans 8, uh, 35 through 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Huh, they must have left it out of my translation. Any of you got it? What's the one thing that can separate us from the love of Christ? Can you find it? Me neither. Because it seems strange then that we're going to be talking about unbelief and sin. I mean, it's not going to separate us. What's the deal? Well, the reason is that apparently God's people, although they cannot take themselves out of God's hand, 
can react and act in, in, in rebellion against God in such a way that the flow of God's grace to us is squeezed down to a tiny trickle. And he means it to be a fire hose. We are saved by grace. And that's not of ourselves, it tells us in Ephesians 2. So we can't unsave ourselves. If you didn't save yourself, you can't unsave yourself. But the Scriptures make it abundantly clear that it is possible for us to think and live and act contrary to God's revealed will. We're on the same page? So our unbelief makes us turn back, use the very graphic language of Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog to its vomit. And I don't know if you've ever seen that, but it's an ugly thing. Back to worthless idols. Back to wanting the tasty leeks and onions of our slavery in Egypt. Instead of entering into the milk and honey that God has set aside for us in the promised land. Sorry, I'm not used to wearing these weird head things. One effect of our unbelief is to make us worry that something will separate us from the love of God. Unbelief steals our assurance. Unbelieving legalism transforms our message into work harder, live more nervously. You've met Christians like that. You may be one occasionally. The unbelief of license and loose, loose living, on the other hand, tr- turns the gospel into a kind of a laissez-faire. God doesn't really care. Do your own thing. Nothing matters. Today we're talking about what it means to be a pro-life Christian in the midst of a world deeply infected with adultery, that is sex outside marriage, and abortion, that is the killing of babies in their mother's wombs. If we talk about these things with a legalistic unbelief, we'll end up losing the good news of Jesus Christ. And instead we'll tell people, you you did bad things, you need to stop doing bad things, You need to be good like we are in order to get God's blessing in your life. And that's not the gospel. On the other hand, if we talk about these things with a licentious unbelief, as a great many in the evangelical church are doing in this country, we'll lose the holiness of the gospel. And we'll say to people, it doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It doesn't matter how you act or how you think. God has it all covered. And God does have it all covered. But for the Christian, the response is to be deeply thankful and do all we can to stay under that cover. Amen? To live according to what He tells us pleases Him. If you know somebody loves you so much, you want to do all you can to please them. And that is what our Lord is, who He is. So the two kinds of unbelief hide the gospel. They hide the good news of Jesus Christ. Both of them put an unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, at the center of the universe instead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Think about that for a minute. At any moment, one of the best questions I can ask myself is, who's at the center of the universe right now? And so often I'm going, ooh, it's me. 
and it transforms or calls me to be transformed into putting Jesus back on the throne. When Jesus sent his Holy Spirit into our life, when his grace saved us, we were in desperate condition. Ezekiel gives us a description of Jerusalem here in, in chapter 16. And there, Jerusalem is representative not only of Judah and Israel, but of all of God's people. And it looks a lot like an unwanted child, doesn't it? Out on an ash heap, cord not cut. We, spiritually speaking, were thrown away at the moment of birth. We didn't have our cords cut. We were not washed or rubbed down or wrapped in soft clothes. Rather, we and she, because we'll find out this is a she in Ezekiel 16, were discarded in an open field, naked and far from the care of any other person. And those involved had no compassion on her. And who are the people who are concerned? Who are the biological parents, so to speak, in this picture Ezekiel gives us? Thy birth and thy nativities from the land of Canaan, thy father was an Amorite and thy mother was a Hittite. God is seriously bad-mouthing Jerusalem here. <laughs> I hope you got that. <laughs> the Amorites and the Hittites worshipped idols and they sacrificed their children to those idols. The Lord's saying something about how far his people are from being holy. And if you remember uh, another, uh, an important passage, uh, David speaks in Psalm 51, and he says the same thing of himself. He says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The point is, we're all bad to the bone, to use some contemporary language, not only from birth, but from conception. We are desperate sinners until the Lord begins His work of redemption in our lives. And by the way, if you were conceived in sin, that means you were a human from conception. There's no such thing as a sinful appendix or sinful tonsils. No sinful masses of tissue. But if you're a sinful creature, then you're a human being. So, that we were both made in God's image and yet deeply infected with sin is reinforced by many passages in Scripture, and these are the basis for the Christian stand against abortion. Made in God's image, fallen in sin. As God describes Jerusalem and David describes himself as a desperate sinner, so the Apostle Paul, too, he calls himself the chief of sinners. And each of us need to be able to put that label on ourselves if we understand the gospel. If we have been found by the Lord, and He's begun His redeeming work in us, then a big transformation begins. First chapter of John, uh, verses 12 and 13, tells us as many as received Him, talking about Jesus, as many as received Him, to them He gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Lord redeems us from our desperate state. It's not a matter of our parents or our family tree, 
nor were we voted into the kingdom. As the book of Philippians tells us, we can work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both the will and to do according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12, 13. So look at another part of Ezekiel's description. Not only uh, were we unwashed when he found us, and with pagan origins, but we were polluted and lying in our blood, which is more than an incidental detail. Throughout the Old Testament, to be described as in your blood is synonymous with standing under God's judgment. This first plays out in the Garden of Eden when God sheds the first blood. You remember that? Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves, cover up their sin, hide their sin. God says, forget it. You can't even do that. And he clothes them in skins of an animal that he just killed. Bloody skins. First sacrifice, the first adequate clothing. And this same theme comes on down then through Abel's righteous sacrifice and through the covenant of Noah and the law of Moses. And in all of these, blood is both a sign of sin and of the required atonement for sin. We see this starkly laid out under the covenant of Noah as God commands how murderers are to be treated. And I, I would just interpose here. I don't have time to discuss this. I'd love to. But the civil law is a very important dimension of God's intentions for the human race. Under the civil law of the Old Testament, we have all these rules, including the punishments. The church is not responsible for meeting out these punishments. And that's the, that's the main thing I would like to say at this point. So we want to raise up righteous civil law civil officers to do these things right and well and to reform the laws so they conform to God's image. But we're not saying here that the church is in charge of doing what I'm going to read to you. Whoso sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. Very simply speaking, a murderer was to be put to death. His blood for the blood he shed. That God made man in his own image, male and female, is at the heart of the Christian stand against abortion. Men, all men and women, from conception to natural death, are made in God's image, and they stand under God's special and sacred protection. But those who shed that blood stand under God's judgment, and, and under a righteous uh, 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 civil law, they stand under the penalty of death. Now, there's debate in that area, and I'm not making an absolute statement. But as far as God's Word goes, that's where I will hold it right there. But those who shed that blood stand under this penalty with their own blood required. So this whole idea of you've sinned, therefore there is a judgment hanging over you, is sometimes referred to as blood guilt. That those who do a certain thing now stand guilty of blood. Some blood needs to be shed to pay for it. And we believe this very strongly as Christians. Whose blood has been shed for us? 
The Lord's blood has been shed for us. Amen. So this blood guilt thing, I'm going to run through real quickly the little history of it. It goes clear back to the Garden of Eden where God gives the first command before they've even sinned, or basically uh, describing what sin is in Genesis 2, 15 and 16. He tells them, Of every tree thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in that day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And the strange thing is they didn't. Somehow those bloody skins... Well, let's read a little, I'll, I'll read a little more of what we've thought about here. Uh, Romans 6, 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. That's how it starts. Reminding us. And the animals that we've talked about that uh, clothed Adam and Eve were temporary substitutes for that death. Those animals' death and their blood covered Adam and Eve's sin temporarily until the lasting and perfect sacrifice, the blood of Jesus, should come to cover God's people once and for all. The whole book of Hebrews, once and for all. So the end of Romans 6, 23, you remember, started out, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ezekiel was particularly aware of this concept of blood guilt because at the beginning of his book, um, he is called to be a watchman. You look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 21. And God tells him the watchman is also in danger. He says if he fails to warn those that God sends him to warn, then not only will they stand blood guilty, but their blood will be upon his hands. But if he does warn them and they don't listen, God will not hold him responsible and he will be free of the guilt of their blood. And the watchman is sent to two groups. It's very clear in, uh, in, in Ezekiel 6. There's the wicked who will not repent. And there's also the righteous. When they hear the warning, they will repent. And the watchman's held responsible for preaching to everybody. Amen. He's supposed to reach all of those, both those wicked who will not and those who will, because he doesn't know the difference. Neither do you and I. I have to tell one little story along this. Is, this is one of my favorite little stories about, I wasn't going to do this, but since he's already told you that I'm an ex-con, I, <laughs> I was in jail up in Bergen County uh, for about 16 days, New Jersey. And uh, they put us in the general population. You know, there's a big big area where you, they kind of first let you in there. They want to find out if you're crazy or not, and they kind of watch you. Uh, and a guy came up to me with a Bible almost right away. young guy wanted to talk. I said, oh, this is great. The amount of openness, spiritual openness inside prisons is astounding. It's a big mission field. You, you can't even go in there without finding fellowship and worship and people that want to hear about Jesus. But anyway, this guy came up and we started talking a little bit. And then he says, hey, you know, there's a couple other guys here that are interested in having a Bible study. You want to do it? I said, yeah, sure. He said, all right, we're going to meet up in that cell in the second tier uh, tonight at uh, such and such a time. And meanwhile, I'm looking around in here and there's this 
one guy kind of strutting around. He is the toughest looking hombre I have ever seen. And he walks by my table and I go, definitely not. He's not one of your people, Lord. I'm not even going to think about sharing the gospel with that guy. So we get up in this Bible study and we're sitting there getting started. And who walks in the door? The tough guy. He sits down. He's got more Bible knowledge than anybody else there. So all I'm saying is don't do your second guessing. Don't try to pick out who God's people are and who they aren't. Tell them all the gospel. Warn them all and let God do what he does. Amen? I really shouldn't be making this longer, but it's still got a ways to go, folks. <laughs> all right. The idea of blood guilt does not just apply to individuals. This might be an American problem we're talking about here. It applies to families and nations as well. So in Ezekiel 16, God brings judgment upon sinful Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, as well as their pagan enemies. And God holds to such a high degree of holiness that he requires his people to make atonement for a murder when the murder's even unknown. And if you, there's a very fascinating passage, Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9. God lays out this fairly elaborate set of steps. They have to figure out what's the nearest city to where we found the guy that was killed. Then they take the priests and the elders from that city and they come out and they sacrifice a heifer and they lay their hand on it, and they each have to swear in these words, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed, and lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge. The passage ends in verse 9 of chapter 21, And the blood shall be forgiven them. So shalt thou put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when thou shalt do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. I'll let the Holy Spirit apply that to your heart <laughs> in relation to abortion. I, but I think it applies, don't you? In America, we talk about rugged individualism. You know, just me about equipping ourselves, taking care of ourselves, pursuing our own goals. This idea has affected the church. Instead of thinking ourselves as members of Christ and fellow members of one another, we're inclined to think of our Christian walk mostly in terms of me and Jesus. The Great Commission comes together with the watchman's call and sending us into the earth with a message. And the gospel is a warning as well as a free offer. And when we fail to share it in our unbelief, we not only diminish our own individual blessing and joy, but we deny our families, our communities, and our nation the opportunity to repent and find hope. Our unbelief is part of what keeps them in their blood guilt. When Ezekiel prophesies against Jerusalem, 
it is not as victims, but rather, if, if they were victims, it would be innocent blood they're lying in, right? But rather, he talks about them as lying covered in blood guilt when God reached down and redeemed them. In the same way, we need to know the Lord came to us not only when we were lying abandoned, but when we were unclean, guilty, and sure to die in our sins. And this is not only true of us as individuals, but also in a very real sense applies to our families and our nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is prefigured as Isaiah speaks of a washing away of blood guilt by a better blood. Right at the beginning of Isaiah, verse 18 of chapter 1, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, Though your sins be as scarlet, blood, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, blood, they shall be as wool. And Ezekiel, chapter, uh, verse 6 of chapter 16, I'll repeat the language to remind you of what kind of blood we were lying in. When I passed by thee and saw thee polluted, in thine own blood. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live, yea. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. So God speaks. This is another important part here. Uh, God spoke in creation. And here he is speaking in redemption. He speaks and he gives life to the unwanted, the dying. One word from God, and the picture changes completely. And how many of us can testify that that is so? God spoke one word and our lives of sin and death and sorrow were radically changed. He not only redeems us as adopted children, but He prepares us as members of His body to go on and together become bride. His relationship continues as He keeps on speaking and transforming us. And so, we're going to look at the next section. I will give you a little relief. We are not going to read the whole of chapter 16. We're going to read about a third of it. But we are going to read the next section, which is almost too much. You know, there are some places in Scripture you go, wow, God, that's too much. It just elaborates and elaborates on God's grace to Jerusalem. We're going to start at verse 8 and read down through verse 14. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was as the time of love. And I spread my skirt over thee, and I covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and I entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God. And thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work, and I shod thee with badger's skin, and I girded thee about with fine linen, and I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck. I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, a beautiful crown upon thy head. Thou wast decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, 
and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Whoa, the picture's expanded. Now we're listening to elaborate marriage language. God receives us in the closest of relationships and he heaps his riches upon us. As in the Song of Solomon, we see God's bond to us is so close and so sacred that he describes it in the most intimate of terms. Marriage is a divine ordinance older than sin. It was first instituted by God in the garden between our original parents, and it illustrates something profoundly important. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul lets us in on it. If you look at verses 28 through 33, it's almost as if this is the primary picture God has for us of his relationship to us. I mean, the primary picture in the world, illustration, as it were. Uh, Ephesians 5, 28, 33. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but he nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I scratch my head. But it's wonderful. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. And ever since then, this ordinance of God, this important illustration of God's love for us, has been under attack by the kingdom of darkness. The very first sin was a split, and an attempt by Satan to split, and he did. He divided them. It wasn't very long after that, Adam said, that woman you gave me, she's the problem. <laughs> I know none of you wives have ever heard that. But, um, in our place and time, this great deception or a great deception, is widespread. And you can put different labels on it. I will call it the Freudian lie that regardless of God's commands, everybody needs sex. A lie. This fundamental lie is promoted by the false prophets of Hollywood, both the playboy heresy and the idolatry represented by no-fault divorce which you young people don't realize has only been with us since the 1950s. Both of them have muddied over this important image of God's relationship with his people. And the devil has continued to obscure this image of Christ in the church. We have been deeply deluded by the terrible lies of free love, meaning open adultery, and gender identity, meaning perversion. And it is this idolatry that led to the legalization of the child sacrifice of abortion. 
Abortion is a man's sin. It benefits men. It allows men to live a freewheeling, it doesn't matter what I do, anything goes, I never have any responsibility. Before abortion, you did have responsibility. And if you were in any kind of a community at all, you know what that looked like. Yes, there was still fornication, and there were, were still young women getting pregnant. But what happened when that happened? Dad went to visit Dad. A little discussion took place. A, a budget discussion and a time discussion. And, and, and the plan was put forward. And many marriages started out with a baby conceived on the wrong side of the ceremony. It was sin. I'm not saying it wasn't sin. And I'm certainly encouraging all you young people to recognize it as sin. But God's provision is still marriage. Repentance. Not more sin. Not another horrible crime. I shouldn't say another horrible crime. Abortion is worse. It shouldn't surprise us that the Playboy Corporation was one of the chief sponsors of the Roe v. Wade law case in 1973. That law case which claimed child killing was a right to be found in our Constitution. By the grace of God, in response to the prayers and sacrifices and political action of many Christians, our Supreme Court finally overthrew that decision this year in the Dobbs decision. And I have to confess, my unbelief had reached a max. I did not think it would happen. And when it happened, I knew God was mighty and doing amazing things. And I continue to pray that He will do the same kinds of things in our state, etc., so there's no longer any basis in federal law for the idea that there's a right to kill babies in the womb. Nevertheless, 49 years of that false claim have had a profound effect on our nation such that the battle to protect the babies continues. And it's a battle, as my brother referred to. We've just seen it politically, as well as in many other states. Just to sharpen your thoughts, 32,000 babies were put to death in Pennsylvania last year through abortion. 16,000 of them right here, southeast Pennsylvania. I wish that Ezekiel's parables ended with the Lord taking His people for His bride. I wish the wedding supper of the Lamb was today, and our redemption and sanctification complete, possibly it will be. And I guess we're supposed to live that way, right? Yeah. But Ezekiel is setting Israel up for a very intense rebuke still to come. And although he could only look forward to the great redemption coming in the promised Messiah, we who look back on Christ's finished work also come in for our share of this rebuke. So, let me ask you this. If you've read the passage, if you haven't, then this will be a surprise. But what does the bloody outcast who has turned into adopted child and then made a beloved bride, what does she do? Now that the Lord has taken her as his own and he dressed her in costly garments and fine jewelry, she turns away from God, her Redeemer, and her husband to other lovers. 
And for the next 49 verses, Ezekiel lays out how ugly it is that a people blessed by God's mercy would turn against their merciful God and sacrifice the very blessings that God has given them to false gods. We're not going to read the entire passage as I, as I assured you, but we are going to look at a couple other uh, brief passages before we uh, conclude here. Look down at verses 15 and 16. This is where the rebuke comes like a sledgehammer. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty. Do you remember where that beauty came from, by the way? My comeliness I put upon you, he said. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and thou playest the harlot because of thy renown, and thou pourest out thy fornications on everyone that passed by. His it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and dexed thy high places with diverse colors, and played the harlot thereupon, the like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Or to paraphrase that last phrase, how is this possible? There's a song that my generation learned in school called America the Beautiful. I don't know if current generations are learning it or not, but uh, the last lines in the song go, America, America, God shed His grace on thee, and crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. Well, I don't have to tell you that the brotherhood's a little shabby at this point. But the good gifts, what have we done with them? They came from God. Every good gift you have. James 1 tells us every good gift and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variableness, neither a shadow of turning. Of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. But where has America's abundance gone? In the service of what spiritual powers do we employ our good gifts that he has shed upon us? Are we serving him as the first fruits of his creature? You remember what the first fruits were used for? For the worship of God. For the sacrifice to God. Completely given over, the best, given over completely for God's worship. Are we those first fruits? Are we serving Him as the first fruits? Have we given our talents and resources and relationships to glorify the one who made us and saved us? Or have we done as those Ezekiel severely rebukes? These are hard words. He calls her. He calls God's rebellious people whores, harlots, prostitutes. And he goes on later to say they're worse than that because they pay their pagan lovers rather than vice versa. But those are not his strongest words. For the epitome of their hypocrisy and ours as Americans and American Christians, look at his words in the next verse, 20, 20 through 21. I'm sorry, not the next, but verses 20 through 21. Moreover, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters, whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them, the lovers and idols. 
to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter, that thou hast slain my children, and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them? Is this of our whoredoms a small matter? Sixty-five million American babies have been put to death in their mother's wombs since the infamous Roe v. Wade decision in 1973. Then, listen closely to this, then, just as in the Constitutional Convention of 1789, and again in the Dred Scott decision of 1857, when the highest authorities of our government approved chattel slavery, the high court flew in the face of God and it declared that some made in God's image are non-humans. Both the slave and the unborn child were declared by our courts to have no legal standing and no rights under United States law. In both cases, terrible and long-lasting evils were let loose in our nation. And both of them had to do with the idolatries of seeking security, wealth, pleasure, and freedom for some at the price of the suffering and even the lives of others made in God's image. Is that a legitimate parallel, brothers and sisters? These same idols of pleasure, security, and popularity or acceptance are what have brought countless women to the abortion clinics and the hospitals of our nation. And what have we to say to them if we're serving the same idols? We have no message. To me, one of the greatest tragedies is that most of those who are dedicated, and there are a lot of people that are dedicated, you can explain it a lot of different ways, but those who are dedicated to child sacrifice have succeeded in focusing their murderous efforts on the descendants of those slaves. Who after 200 years were only freed through a bloody civil war and the reversal a part of our federal constitution. I would just warn you Christians, be careful about talking about how godly a nation we have here. We have big things to repent of, if we haven't already. I think maybe we are repenting, but I just keep that in mind. An even more tragic aspect of this is the degree to which those antichrists, and I think it's legit to call them that, these consciously anti-God and anti-human idol worshipers have convinced a great many descendants of slaves to vote for their agenda and the perpetuation of the sacrifice of their own children. They've succeeded in convincing many churches that there's a great resurgence of racist attitudes in our nation and that this is worse than killing babies. I know Pastor Joe preached on this last week. I didn't get to hear it. We all agree racism is a horrible thing. We all agree there is some there still. But to say that it's so bad that it's all right to vote for those who are in favor of abortion because they claim they're against it is wrong. 
And it's no coincidence that those loudest voices that make this claim are the same ones who favor and promote baby killing. As much of the American evangelical church stands by and repeats the mantra, it's a good thing the Lord's in control. You see, you can make a true statement and be dead wrong. (laughs) And that is a true statement. But it's not the correct response to a great evil in the midst of you. Because many of those who are saying it's a good thing the Lord is in control, if they aren't voting wrong, aren't voting at all. Sorry, now I'm getting a little intense. I'll chill down. We are too nice. We're too nice to even speak about the evils of idol worship and child sacrifice or the Christian citizen's obligation to oppose them. It encourages me a great deal to say that's not the case here. That you would speak about these things that are so important and yet difficult painful even, is a sign of God's blessing on this church, and it's wonderful to see. Ezekiel isn't done. He's not done saying hard things. And this is a hope will bring it full circle. It bring it home, so to speak. Verse 22. And in all thy abominations and thy whoredoms thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare and wast polluted in thy blood. Let me read it again. And in all thy abominations and thy whoredoms thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, when thou wast naked and bare and wast polluted in thy blood. We have forgotten. We forget. We're God's forgetting people. We have not remembered what we were when God delivered us. Why is abortion wrong? Well, we've already quoted the covenant with Noah because God made man in his own image and therefore all human life is sacred before God. But there's another principle operative all through Scripture and every one of us uh, cites it regularly. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh Which for the Christian translates into do unto others as God has done to you. Love one another as Christ has loved you, and so on and so forth. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, you remember that one, Matthew 18, verses 21 and following? We see that no one who truly understands the gospel message about God's mercy towards sinners will fail to treat other sinners with the same compassion. Forgiveness and mercy. After delivering the Lord's Prayer, Jesus elaborates on one part in particular, the part where we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the one part he seems to feel like he needs to spell out a little bit. He says, for Matthew 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The relationship between how we, what we get from God and what we give others is very close. Matthew 25, I'm sure you're aware, it's the judgment of the sheep and the goat. And the basis for the judgment is how you treated 
the least of these my brethren. James 1.27 tells us that true religion and undefiled in the sight of our God and Father is to visit the widow and the orphan in their distress and to keep oneself unspotted by the world. How can true religion boil down to that? It's because anyone who understands what God has done for us will recognize that we are the distressed widows and orphans. We were that when the grace of Jesus Christ visited us in our great need. And therefore, those who understand the gospel will turn around and do the same thing to others in like condition. It will become almost a reflex. Thus, in the Old Testament, the prophets keep harping on the treatment of the outcast. Not only the widow and the orphan, but the lame, the blind, the deaf, the alien, the helpless, the diseased. Because they're representatives of us. That's what we are. That's what we were. Therefore, they ought to be treated with the same kindness that God has shown us. One more passage along these lines. It's interesting. John the Baptist, toward the end of his life, when he's in prison, is a little nervous about, wait a minute, did I make a mistake? And he sends his messengers to Jesus, basically saying, are you the guy or not? Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus sends the messengers back with this message. This is Luke 7, verse 22. Go your way and tell John what things you've seen and heard. How the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and to the poor the gospel is preached. That's us. Jesus says, here's a clear sign I'm the Messiah. I have come to these disenfranchised, the outcasts. Parenthetically, although John the Baptist did not rest assured at the end of his life, he was one of the first to recognize Jesus. Do you remember when? Mary, exactly, in the womb. Mary came to visit Elizabeth, her cousin. And the baby leaped in her womb, greeting him. And, and, and then, then you get these two wonderful songs the women sing. So, uh, apparently, that mass of tissue recognized his Savior. Oh, and by the way, that other mass of tissue was his Savior. When else can the incarnation have taken place but at conception? And if Jesus, the Son of God, became a man at conception, when did you and I become human beings? The signs that Jesus pointed out to John's disciples are the work of the Messiah, which continues. He makes us blind see. He makes us lame walk. He makes us lepers clean. His redeeming power makes us deaf hear and us dead to be raised from the dead. And He keeps speaking savingly to us poor so that we can hear and believe. The great sin of abortion has been made legal among us because we forget. We ourselves were the desperate, needy, 
unwanted, whom Christ came to embrace, we ourselves are the unfortunate byproducts of licentiousness or the double standards of hypocritical legalism. We were those who were lying in an open field with our cords uncut, lying rejected and condemned in our blood. And if we remember it, we will have compassion on those in similar circumstances. So what do we have to offer the unborn child or the woman with the unplanned pregnancy? Indeed, what do we have to offer any of those who have already been there, deeply involved, directly involved in abortion? Is it not the same gospel that we ourselves have received in abundance? Life and hope and forgiveness, power for a new life. In our passage, Ezekiel tells us that God found us in our blood and He spoke a word of life. Let's read it one more time. Verse 6. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. God's word, spoken to our hearts, delivers and raises the sinner by saying, live. That's not an exhortation. It's not even a command. It's what we call a performative. When he says it, it happens. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 1-5, through five, we see the Word by which God created all things has come into the world to bring light and life to men. In the first chapter of Colossians, verse 17, we learn the same One who not only made all things, but He also holds all things together. In the first chapter of Hebrews, verses 2 and 3, we're told God has spoken to us in these last days by His Word, who is the heir of all things, and who by His power upholds all things. This Word is God who came and dwelt among us. Emmanuel. He is Jesus Christ, and His blood shed upon the cross accomplished our redemption. He is perfecting His bride, which is composed of all of God's believing people. I'm going to jump uh, across a couple of my pages. It's really painful for me. You know, I, I just read all this good stuff I've written, and I'm going to skip it for you. But I've been a little long. I recognize that. I want to jump to the, uh, another very, very essential part of this as we close. Let's consider how Jesus is at the center of our passage. There is a messianic dimension to Ezekiel's prophecy. In a very real sense, the one whom God found lying in His blood the one who was abandoned and left to die outside the camp, not in a field but on a barren hilltop, the one who was hung out there naked, and even guilty with the blood guilt that belongs to us, is Jesus. Jesus entered so fully into our place that He not only knows everything about our trials and sufferings, but Going far beyond that, his perfect sacrifice on the cross was accepted once and for all by God the Father. The Father and the Spirit said, Live, 
to Jesus and raised him from death in the tomb. And he has ascended once more to his father's house and throne. So, let's all come and put our trust in him. For some of us, that means repenting of our unbelief and renewing our trust. And others, it means believing and trusting him for the first time. It's the same message, whether you're just coming to Jesus or you've been walking with him for 80 years. For some of us, it means asking and receiving forgiveness for particular sins related to abortion. For some, it means turning again from our idols and our entanglements with the world to going out with a new dedication, perhaps, a new boldness, with the pastor, perhaps, to the abortion clinic, in order to speak the truth in love. For some, it means renewal of marriage commitments and commitments to sexual purity. For some, it may mean revising our public witness and our political priorities. Pastor, would you come up and pray for us? I'm going to just close with a couple words. We can pray the Lord will do these things because He is the resurrected Lord who found us lying in our blood. And what did He say to us? Live. Father, thank You so much for Brother Jim. Thank You for this message. Thank You for Ezekiel. Thank You for Ezekiel 16. Father, thank You that it's a good thing for us to remember what we were. That all over the Scripture, not only in Ephesians 2, but here in Ezekiel 16, we're told it's a good thing to remember what we were, what we've done, how we've lived, that we have all been whores and sinned against You. And we thank You so much, Lord, that You love whores. You love sinners. Jesus, You tell us You didn't come for the righteous. You came for sinners. So Father, we pray You'd help us to see ourselves rightly as as sinners, as broken, as needy. We ask, oh Lord, we would believe in You and trust in You. Father, we ask that You would apply this Word to us the way each of us needs to hear it, showing us what we ought to do and how we ought to act. We pray, Lord God, that we would um, trust in Christ more. We pray if there's anyone here who's never trusted Jesus, that today would be the day that they believe and are saved. Father, we pray that You would help us uh, repent of any way we've been complicit in abortion. We pray, Father, that You would help us honor You by the way that we vote. So many people think voting is just, oh, you know, God doesn't care about that. Oh, Father, we know You do. We know we'll give an account for every vote and every idle word on the day of judgment. Help us to vote in a way that pleases You, O oh God. Father, we ask You would show us how You would have us be involved in saving the unborn, both physically and getting them the gospel. Show us how to love mothers and fathers in need. Show us how You want us to continue to give and support Alpha Pregnancy Center, other faithful pregnancy centers. Show us if You would have us be more involved. Father, have Your way with us. Make us all that You want us to be. Make us humble, loving, gospel-centered, Jesus-centered people who love the unborn and love You more than anything. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.